This episode of The New Disruptors is made possible in part by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. They also have hats for cats and small dogs. Visit MailChimp.com to sign up and give them a try. We're also brought to you this week by Indiegogo. What do the Nikola Tesla Museum, the film that won this year's Sundance Film Festival, and a baby have in common? They've all been crowdfunded on Indiegogo, the largest global crowdfunding platform, empowering people around the world to raise funds for any idea. You can choose flexible funding and keep all the funds you raise, even if you don't meet your goal. Listeners of The New Disruptors can get a 25% discount on Indiegogo fees. To take advantage, go to tnd.indiegogo.com. That's TND like the new disruptors.indiegogo.com. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash new disruptors, P A T R E O N, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to recent patrons Andy McMillan and Andy Bayo. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that believes that card catalogs never go out of style. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You might also like listening to Not Playing, a podcast in which my hilarious friends, Lex and Dan, watch movies everyone else has seen except them. You can find us all at boingboing.net. And I am right now sitting in an amazing institution in the 21st century. It is a bookstore, in the back room of a bookstore. And it may seem in the 21st century that it's an exercise in futility to open a bookstore. What are you thinking to open a bookstore at this time? But that's only if you open a bookstore that's the 20th century style. Danielle Halton of Ada's Technical Books not only opened a store in Seattle a few years ago, but recently dramatically expanded the space uh, into a new building. And what led her to leap where others feared to tread? How do you keep a bookstore current when ebooks seem to be sucking readers away? We will discuss all of these questions and the nature of entrepreneurialism. Thank you for being here. Thank, thank you for having me at your bookstore, Danielle. Yeah, thank you. So I remember hearing about this when you first opened and thinking, I love the fact that there's a technical bookstore opening in Seattle. That's great. Portland's got one. We should have one in Seattle also. In Portland, it's an arm of Powell's. You know, it's a, Powell's has a billion square feet. And this is like one store they have. And it's not, not the sort of same special thing. But this is as an independent person. You said there's a, a crying need for this. How did you come to a place where you said, I want to open a bookstore? <laughs> yeah, well, it was uh, it was actually a pretty quick process for me. Uh, I So... I moved to Seattle to go to school. I studied electrical engineering and computer science. And then I, uh, while I was still in school and then immediately after I graduated, I worked full-time as a computer engineer at a local engineering firm, Pico Computing, here here in Seattle. And uh, I really loved it. I especially loved it while I was in school. Um, and then the last, the two years after school, I realized this is really great. I love the people that do these things. I love talking about these things. I love coding and that kind of stuff. I don't love the day-to-day grind of being an engineer. Not my favorite thing in the world. But you spent your whole life to that point, right? You've been, Mm -hmm. you've been, you studied electrical engineering. You got a degree in electrical engineering. Obviously it took years to come to the point where you wanted to to do that. I mean, when did you first get interested in in circuitry and electronics design? Oh, when I was really young. Um, My dad is actually a DRAM designer. Mm. Um, and so I, I guess, I mean, it was always something that was part of my family. We had computers before 
anybody else I knew did because they were like the old hand-me-downs from my dad's company. And, and out of I have three siblings, and out of all my siblings, I was really the most interested in how things worked, how the computer worked specifically. I spent the, the most time on it, and I would go to work with my dad, and uh, his – his coworkers would teach me like basic layout and basic circuits oh God, and all this stuff because I just thought it was great. Yeah. Um, my first science project was uh, the conductivity of different uh, materials. My dad like gave me a bunch of things, showed me how to hook up a battery and a light bulb, and then said, "You know, have fun." <laughs> <laughs> I laugh now because I'm pretty certain I almost set the carpet in my bedroom on fire doing it, but it was it was fun. That is such an electrical uh, engineer thing to do. Yeah. It's like here you go. Uh, this, now you understand all the principles. Yeah, so just yeah, get yeah. At it. All theoretical. <laughs> Um, and so when I went to school, so, you know, and I, I really, really, um, loved math. That was the biggest thing that I loved. Um, I also really loved reading, but I couldn't see a career that I wanted to do that involved, you know, sitting around reading a book. And what I loved about math and I still do is that there are pretty complex problems and the further you get into it, the more complex they are, but there's always a solution at the end of it. And that was really satisfying, and I loved it, and I loved learning how to get to that solution, and it was a repeatable thing. You know, like, once you know how to do it, you can do it with all different kinds of numbers and different things. Um, and so, um, and I... There's no end to math, right? No. That's the thing. No, it goes like, forever. Yeah. It's great. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted to do a career that had to do with math because I loved it. And so I went into electrical engineering because that was what I was. I knew, and I knew I liked it, and I knew that it was a long program, and I wanted to start in that because I wanted to graduate in four years. <laughs> <laughs> and around junior year, I kind of knew I didn't want to be specifically an electrical engineer. I really felt like I wanted to be more a computer engineer, hence the minor in computer science, and then what I did for four years. And yeah, so it was, I mean, and, and like I said, I still enjoy being an engineer. I like thinking of creative solutions to problems. I still really enjoy math and I really enjoy, you know, starting from nothing and creating something that's really great. And I do it in my personal time a lot, less frequently recently because I'm, I've really gotten into business lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but I still, in my spare time, I have all these projects that I either am in the middle of doing or have on the pipeline of just, and they're just like silly, fun things. Like I made a necklace that lights up when it's dark outside. I thought that was cool and it was fun. And it, it's for, you know, I would never like sell that necessarily, but it was for me personally, you know, type is, of thing. Is part of the transition where, where you left the path that you've been on your life, um, is that aided by the fact that you knew that you have tools available so that you can be a creator, you can be a maker now without having to have apparatus behind you. So if you want to fulfill your dreams as an electrical engineer or even a computer engineer, maybe you need to be at a company to do it 10, 15, 20 years ago. But now there's a lot. I mean, did that play That's into part it? Of it? That's part of it. You wouldn't I have think, to leave it entirely. I guess. Right. Well, so that definitely, the, the fact that I didn't have to leave it entirely was definitely part of it. Um, the bigger part was that um, that I was looking for a way to build community and I also realized the older that I got that what I really, really loved about engineering and math and reading was learning something new. That's what I really loved. And, you know, in my career, I mean, I was still learning things like new things, but they were always under the same topic and they were always, you know, it was at a slower pace. So basically what ended up happening was at, at Pico Computing, I met my husband there too. His name's David and he still works at Pico. He is a cryptographer, but he's what I like to call a multi-passionate tech entrepreneur. He has three or four businesses. They're all somehow related to tech. And he really thinks in that mindset of, well, if your perfect career doesn't exist, then just make it. That's that's what you should do. Um, and so, 
you know, I was still really young and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and knowing that I didn't want to do what I was doing. And so we basically made a list of, and I couldn't even, at the time, I couldn't even figure out what I wanted to do. I just knew how I wanted to feel, the types of things I wanted to be doing every day, the types of people I wanted to be around, that kind of stuff. But every career choice that I could think of, I was like, I don't want to do that. And so... This problem that you had deep expertise in an area too, which yeah. most people looking for, it's just most people looking for what they're going to do in life. Yeah. They don't have like a 10 year background in right, something. Right. They're, like, they're like, well, you know, this neuroscience or this, you know, uh, neurosurgery that I've took up, I'm not as interested in that. But it's, I mean, it's equivalent of that. Is yeah. you, you wire your brain in a certain way of thinking. You're focused on, you can conceptualize mm-hmm. circuits in your head. You can sit down and do these things. Yep. And you said, this is not what I think I can spend eight, 10 or 12 hours a day doing, exactly. but then finding a new path with knowing that like you have knowing a specialty. That, yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, I think for me too, like the specialty, yes, but I think something that the reason why I had that specialty is that I, I honestly, if you were to push me to say like, what's your specialty? I actually think my specialty is picking up the basics of something really quickly. Mm. And that, and so I wasn't, I mean, I was, I was a really good engineer, um, but I wasn't like an amazing amazing engineer. I would say David is an amazing, amazing engineer. He can look at something and figure it out right away. And he's really, he's really good at that. My dad is like that too. I was good. And it was mostly because I worked really hard and I was able to pick up new concepts pretty quickly. But once we started getting to like the advanced concepts, I still liked them. I still got into them, but it took me a little longer to get into it. And it was something that I just... And I, I was kind of bored. I wanted to learn something new at that point. I was like, okay, well, I've, I've learned this thing. I want to learn something different. And so one of the biggest things when I was looking at what career paths I wanted to do was the fact that I wanted to be able to learn a little bit about basically everything having to do with tech because that's, that's my specific interest is technology and math and science. And so I wanted to be able to learn a little bit about everything. And I also wanted to be able to be around other people that wanted to learn a little bit about everything and talk about specifics of things and really like experts in their field. And and that sounded like fun. That's what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to be in a place where I could in a single day have a really complex task that you needed to be an expert in your field to do, followed by filing paperwork. <laughs> Something like really easy and simple and mindless mm-hmm. um, because that's the way my brain works and works really nicely doing that. And so we had this list. Um, I think we n- narrowed it down to three careers. So David came up actually with the idea of a technical bookstore and, and he came up with it because he saw my list of interests and knew me very well and thought this would fit something she would want to do. And it's something in Seattle that that we could have and we should have and we've mentioned how Seattle should have something like this. We've had most of our bookstores have shut down too. There's not that many I'm trying to think of the ones that are left, but there used to be one I've even blanked out on it. It was downtown it was there Shories. Shories was here uh-huh. for decades. Yeah, yeah. And I mean they were sort of an more of antiquarian whatever, but mm-hmm. we never had a Powell's here. No. And all the big bookstores went away. We have uh, and I shouldn't you know there's, yeah, there's Elliot third, Bay yeah, and third place. Third place right? Elliot Bay went through bankruptcy yeah. and transformation. Yeah. Third place is great. But there's no um they're general bookstores and they've, and I don't want to say they struggle, but they're sort of neighborhood bookstores. Mm-hmm. We don't have like the big place. It's mm-hmm. always surprised me. You've got the Strand in New York has managed to survive all these years. You've mm-hmm. got Powell's. There's bookstores in San Francisco and we're a city of books. People read like crazy. We spent $150 million <laughs> on our central library and yeah. we don't have a big bookstore. I think that is a different thing. I think that's the nature of Seattle being so neighborhood centric mm-hmm. because I would argue that almost every neighborhood in Seattle has a bookstore. That's no, They're totally small. Right. Yeah. And we don't have a Powell's, but we probably have more bookstores than 
Portland. I don't know. Maybe the same number. I don't really know. I don't want to get into an argument about number Portland. They're great. Listeners too. may not realize, but there's always a rivalry between Portland. Now that Portland's catching yeah. up to us economically. We We're not going to start that. Yeah. That's right. No rumbles here. Yeah. But, but yeah, but the, the you know, I was going to ask about the, mm-hmm. the career shift, which mm-hmm. is, I know from, uh, I'm a, I call myself like a hack programmer. I've been programming mm-hmm. since I was 11 or nine or something. Yeah. And, and I've never gotten to that point where I can just sit down and spend an entire day programming. For me, right. sometimes that fugue state you get into where you're completely lost, it's all abstract, you're running the programs in your head, you're doing circuit diagrams in your mind. Mm-hmm. I never got across that threshold where I could just comfortably sit. And then the people I know who are good programmers, mm-hmm. who do it professionally for themselves or companies, they sit down and they go into a fugue and it's like 8, 10, 12 yeah. hours, the same thing. And that's a sustainable thing. It seems like you found in yourself that that degree of abstraction like i mean you're talking about advanced concepts but yeah. also the the passion or the the brain structure that would mm-hmm. just say i can do this all the time this is exactly i go right into that place right i can i can do it for about a week <laughs> and i could do but then i need to switch to something else mm-hmm. to be in my head about um i think that's what it is and so i can i can get into my head and work nonstop on something but then i need to switch to something else i can't just keep and and for me it has to be vastly different um, it can't be, oh, I'm going to just do another program now, mm-hmm. which I know is vastly different to a lot of people. But to me, in my head, it was the same thing. I'll switch from Java to PHP. Yeah, and That'll yeah. be a big, <laughs> a big switch. But so this is terrific. So you identify like the thing that you spent your life building up to. You got mm-hmm. the degree. Obviously, don't regret it at all. No, it's clear no, it was no. really yeah. a great part of your life. But, but you want to do something different. And you have, the, you have the, the freedom, the option to say, what can I look at in front of me that I could do? And yeah. So where was it on the matrix? You have these different parameters. So what mm-hmm. was the things where the where bookstore, like this, yeah. you know, last century thing, the thing <laughs> that everyone tells us bookstores are failing and, and it's all going to be eBooks and all these things that are not true, right? They're yeah. not true yeah. in the same way. Like Barnes & Noble and Borders may be failing, but not, not bookstores. Yeah. But we're told this is sort of the message is like all these stores went out of business and whatever. Where and where was the matrix where you said like, okay, I've got, you know, your husband is here, XXX and bookstore, that's it. To be completely honest, I... Never once thought like, ooh, a bookstore, that's really dangerous because I have always loved bookstores and I know that they go out of business, but so do other stores and other businesses. And I guess like maybe I missed the memo that bookstores <laughs> were dying or something. You went through I, don't, one cycle, <laughs> I don't know what was going on, but I I was not at all worried about that. I mean, we started the store in 2010 and so... And then there was that same people, oh, a bookstore, oh, in a recession. And the same thing. It was kind of <laughs> like, maybe I'm too much of an optimist. I don't know. It, that, never, that never concerned me. I guess like my whole theory about the entire business structure is that if you create something that is attractive and that is fair and that your passion behind it is really obvious and you really, really love what you're doing, that other people will respond to that. And it doesn't really matter what it is that you're doing. And so because I am so passionate and I always have been about books and science and technology and the people doing that. And I guess to me, if it turned out 15 years from now, you could not get a paper book unless you paid thousands of dollars because for whatever reason, something happened, which I don't, I really don't think that's going to happen maybe in a hundred years or 200 years, but not within my lifetime. But maybe, maybe, even if that happened, then Ada's would be a place where you could buy ebook readers and hang, or ebooks, and, or I don't know. It would still be the, I, the concept of getting together over learning new ideas and spreading the wealth of that and uh, having, you know, employees that are really experts and know what they're doing and can recommend, you know, C over C sharp and know the difference and why you would want to do that. 
I I think that that's a sustainable business model, whether or not the the physical books are around. That's uh, and that I think you encompass so much that's going on too, which we we can unpack all these pieces. I want to start with the physical books that you opened mm-hmm. almost four years ago in mm-hmm. your first location. We're in the second location now. We're recording in this wonderful, beautiful new facility. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about, but your first location. Um, who comes in to buy a physical technical book? Who comes into yeah. the bookstore when you opened up? People are like, oh, a bookstore that has, you know, because I remember yeah. that feeling when I went to Powell's in 1995 or something mm-hmm. like that at the sort of the dawn of that part of the computer age. I mean, it was well past lots of parts of computer age, but every O'Reilly book was on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God. And then Amazon opens like, oh, I can buy every O'Reilly book. But what's <laughs> the experience like in 2010 when someone walked through the door? Yeah. What, what was the reaction when they saw what you had on the shelves? So I would say the the people that were coming in the store are about what you would expect, actually. It was mostly men um, between the ages of, you know, 18 and 45 that were working in the professional industry is what most people were doing. And people saying like, oh, I just got this new job and I really need to learn how to program in, you know, X language or uh, I'm in school and I'm learning this, but I want to learn, you know, about this topic that's tangentially related and that's really interesting to me. And it was always exciting to me when there were women that came in with the same like mindset and they that was that was really fun because it's easier for me, I think, sometimes to geek out. Well, no, not easier. Anyway, it's, it was really fun when there. So it's that kind of mindset, and it's people that um, it's it's you know the average Seattleite. I mean, almost everybody <laughs> in Seattle works in tech. I feel like <laughs> it feels like no, no. <laughs> um, and no, so it can't technically be true, but it feels. Like <laughs> and so it was especially people, and that's true now too. That it was especially people that. Um, that didn't specifically know what book they wanted or knew the topic, but um, so they knew the topic, but not the book or so, you know, like it's not students because students know exactly what book they want because their professor tells them that this is what book they need. It's somebody that's working in a professional field that wants to learn something new, but doesn't really know the best book to get for that. Let me take a break to tell you about another of this week's sponsors, Media Temple. Now, hold on, because I've been talking about Media Temple for a few weeks. You may think you've heard everything, but they've got some new services that I'm going to tell you about this week, plus a special offer at the end of the message for our listeners. So you know about Media Temple's grid service, because I've already told you about that. You can host anything from a portfolio site to a 100 different client projects. Hundreds of servers work together in the cloud to keep your sites online. They offer terrific 24 by 7 live support. You get 100 gigabytes of storage, one terabyte of bandwidth, one-click install for WordPress. The grid web hosting now comes with SSDs, which will load sites up to 50% faster. And they also have virtual private server solutions with DV Developer and DV Managed hosting plans. But you know all that. Let me tell you about two new things that may be of great interest to listeners of this show. First, Managed WordPress hosting. Now, if you've worked with a WordPress site, you know one of the most difficult things is keeping it up-to-date and secure and dealing with the uneven load when you get huge amount of traffic coming through to something you posted, you don't expect it. So they offer hosted WordPress, which is, people are familiar with, but it comes with unlimited bandwidth and you can do three WordPress installs and these come with integrated email as well. So that's one thing. The other is managed hosting, which is hosting handled by Media Temple's team of in-house engineers. This is new. You don't have to deal with server administration. Media Temple's cloud tech engineers take care of everything. They monitor, optimize, and protect your service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let them manage your hosting. You manage your business. There's a special discount for New Disruptors listeners. So... 
Enter the promo code TND, lowercase TND for The New Disruptors. Get 25% off your first month of web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net, enter promo code TND on signing up. Check out their new services and give them a spin. And now, back to the podcast. Uh, so you go online and you're in that situation and everything in the world is available to you, which means yeah. everything – there's a – what's it called? Overchoice? Is it Hoffler? Or it's, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like when you're presented with too many options, you become disabled. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you know, I don't like – the word curation has gotten so overused. I like when it comes out of my mouth, I go blah, you know, but it's like <laughs> – but curation in the sense of, of uh, uh, not just sort of taking what's out there and shaping it, but actually making conscious decisions about what's there. So the books yeah. you carry, the C++ books you have or the books on – See, Charmaine, the lights went off. One of the lights went off. <laughs> we haven't moved enough. That's why we've got to move more. It's a fancy new building. But the books you have, if you have C++ or Objective C books, mm -hmm. you're not carrying 400 books in the no. category. How many books do you carry on C++? Do you have 10 or 5? Do you have a reason for each of them? So C++ is probably a larger section. It's mm -hmm. a larger language. That's that's probably closer to 40 or 50. It's very specialized yeah. now too, right? Because you might need to learn for in, in mm -hmm. relation to some yes. subject you're yeah, using. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but say HTML, which is also a very popular language, I would say we probably only have 30 books on mm -hmm. that. And it's because there's a lot of HTML books out there, but not all of them are great. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge thing. I actually, I think I, somebody asked me what makes ADAS different than other bookstores, and that's a big part of it is that um, I'm very picky about what we bring into the store in terms of if the quality isn't there and I can't tell immediately that it's there, we don't bring it in. And there's some books that um, we've sent back, you know, they come and we're like, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't. Uh, the right kind of book for our store. We should unveil a secret about the book industry that people outside of it don't know, which oh, is that most, not all books, books but, yeah, most of them, <laughs> I know it's true. You can pay a cheap, you can pay a lower wholesale price in some cases with some yeah. publishers with on a non-return basis. So you're having an event and you need 30 <laughs> books, you get a cheaper rate, right? Yeah. But most of the books you buy, you can Send return. Back. Yeah. You <laughs> pay great. shipping. Yeah. And it's, but it's funny though, because that's why the book industry has traditionally been so ridiculously inefficient and yeah. they'll put, they'll take these books so you can always send them back. We'll bear the shipping back. We want you to have them in the store. Right. Right, yeah, right. but that lets you experiment too, though. It lets you bring mm -hmm. things in. It doesn't work. It goes back to the distributor. And there have been some surprises that I was hesitant about at first, but by and large, I I'm very protective about who does the ordering. Right now, it's just me. Mm -hmm. I finally relinquished control of buying used books from customers. <laughs> um, but even that, I still like to see before we say like the final, like here, yes, we will take these books. I still like to see which ones they are. Do you have multiple people or if you train your staff and use book buying or how it's do you just do? one other employee. And so, and they, do they, <laughs> very do they scan and do a database or do they know? They, they, no, we, we use the internet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we look on Amazon and see, okay, so this book is about this much. I mean, and then there's certain books that you know for a fact, okay, Amazon is charging $3 for that. And that, that's a steal. I mean, honestly, like other people would pay 10. And so, you know, it's kind of like, but you got the physical you know, thing too. Yeah. It's like, it might cost a buck on Amazon, but there's $5 right. shipping associated or right. three. There's so that, too. You, that used to be a thing in the, in the olden days, back when I was a kid in the seventies and eighties, <laughs> it was, um, the used book buyers had a ridiculous amount of knowledge because they almost had, I mean, eventually oh, they had gosh. microfiche and then some early databases or dial up things in the nineties. Yeah. But God, you'd meet these people and they could look at a book and they knew what it was worth. And yeah. if they, occasionally you'd stump and you bring something in, they go, I need to look it up. And they pull out books and print. They'd pull out these buyer guides. Yeah. But it was this wild thing. And Powell's used to have, I think it was six months of training before wow. you were allowed to buy used books. And now most stores just, they scan it. Mm -hmm. They have price algorithms that tell them what to charge. Yep. And, and that's what, it. and that's what we do. Too. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, sometimes algorithms are wrong, but mm -hmm. most, but most of the time, and that that's based on the algorithms being wrong, I think are just store to store because right. for some stores, 
you know, certain books aren't going to sell. So well, you've got a very um, specialized audience, so mm-hmm, you know what mm-hmm. people people want. And right. it sounds like you're out there, so you're not in the back. We're in the back office right now. You're mm-hmm. out on this in the store. How much do you like to be out there? So a, I, a lot once. I like being out there a lot, but I cannot be or else <laughs> things don't. So, I mean, so one thing you mentioned earlier is like lessons I've learned. That's one big lesson I've learned is that that the business needs to be able to run without me. And if it doesn't, if, I, if I'm if i the um, roadblock for things getting done, then nothing gets done, which is, which is really bad. So I cashier uh, or like manage on the floor one day a week, like the first oh, half of a of a day, and then David does the other half. It used to be two days a week, and he told me like, "Hey, I'd really love to, you know, do that a little more." So, so he, but that's a recent thing. So, one day a week I'm on the floor, and one day a week he's on the floor, and then the other four days for me are actually in the office the whole time and, you know, just do, making sure the business is running. Ordering books. Um, yeah. And then doing place. things like growing the business. Cause yeah. I have so many ideas of things that I want to do or add. And um, we're kind of in the middle of one right now with the co-working space upstairs. And so there's a lot of like pipeline things that, that wouldn't get done if I didn't work on it. Oh, yeah, let's enumerate some of the stuff that's going on because mm-hmm. I, I came into this discussion saying it's a bookstore, but of course yeah. you can't just be a bookstore. Now no. there's all these kinds of things you do. I mean, even if we look at the category of books, so you've got new yeah. and used and used, yeah used to be a weird thing for bookstores to carry. Mm-hmm. And then Powell's broke that barrier years ago. And then yep. every bookstore that stayed in business carries used just about, I think. Yeah. It's pretty close well, to it. A few still are new. Do. A yeah, lot Because yeah. you can't make, you can't compete online against new necessarily, but a mix of new and used often provides the right margins. Right. But then we have eBooks. We have print on demand. We have things mm-hmm. like the Espresso system for making one-off books. Yeah. You know, there's Google books, the public domain Google books that people mm-hmm. can download. So, that's just the books <laughs> category. So let, let's just walk through, like, what does this bookstore do in an yeah. average week or two? What <laughs> kinds of – and you've got a ca- – I mean, you've got the cafe. What, yeah. what all is encompassed here? So so right now, currently, we have new books, a lot of them. We have a small amount of used books. Uh, it used to be about 50 50%. Now it's, I would say, about 60 to 70% new, and the rest is used. And then we also sell the Kobo ebook reader and we uh, resell Kobo ebooks on our website. Um, and that's all through the American Booksellers Association. They've partnered with Kobo, which I really like. I mean, beyond the fact that it, I can, and a lot of ebooks up until recently, you independent bookstores cannot resell them. I mean, it, if you ignore that fact, they're the only um, DRM free big business mm-hmm. uh, ebook. Seller. So all the books um, they sell are DRM free. Yeah, and, and so therefore leave. everything mm-hmm. we sell is DRM free, which is really mm-hmm. important to me, and I and I am glad that they do that. And we used to resell Google eBooks before they closed up and said no, we don't want to do that to independent booksellers anymore, or with independent bookstores. Yeah. But they weren't DRM free as much. They were they were more than like a Kindle, but still. And yeah. the Kobo reads EPUB format, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you can read and just read PDF as well. Yep. Yeah, so it's read almost everything that's released DRM free out in the rest of the world. It yep. can read. Is it integrate? I'm asking you the yeah. question. Is it integrate with Adobe? DRM as well as it only does uh, Adobe's digital reader or only DRM free? Um, it does both. It does both. That's great. And I, I bring that up only because the Adobe ecosystem is interesting because mm-hmm. you can borrow books from a library, yep. like a Seattle Public Library, and read them on a device. So there's DRM, yeah. but it's sort of it's you're off in your interaction with Adobe's DRM with like a library thing is it's so the library can conform with licenses and you can get a book for right. two weeks and it disappears as opposed to a lock-in ecosystem mm-hmm. model. Yeah. 
So we do. So we do the eBooks, and then we also sell magazines, uh, technical magazines, which are uh, hard to get. They're expensive. Magazines are a very interesting category. I imagine the margins are good, but yeah, stocking and getting them as an individual. I want one copy of oh, Linux yeah. Journal or whatever. Like, yeah. how do I buy a copy of it in print? They're form? hard. Uh, the our distributor makes that pretty easy for mm-hmm. us. But if you don't go through the distributor, which some smaller prints don't, um, it, that's difficult for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, where's your stance on print-on-demand is something that's been spreading to some bookstores. Yeah. I know you have a lot more space now, but not a ton of space, and there's a space and capital We think issue. it's cool, and we thought about adding an espresso machine to the store. Uh, the reality is it kind of ran out of room, mm-hmm. um, and they're still pretty expensive, and I can order print-on-demand books through our distributor. <laughs> I mean, they're not immediate, but, you know, there's that. And and honestly, I don't I've never once had a customer come in and say, man, I really wish you had an espresso machine. Mm-hmm. So I think, the notion I think was it's maybe- cool, but yeah, it's not, it's, it's, there's not a huge, huge demand right now. I don't think you'd need more publishers to shift away from stocking from doing offset. And uh-huh. uh, we just went through this with the book, the, the magazine book is mm-hmm. that split between, and I had a conversation I'll link to in the show notes with Kevin Kelly. Uh, it was one of the wired team that made wired and he just came out mm-hmm. with cool to- tools, mm-hmm. a book he published on his own. And, and he was looking at that split. There's this line between when, it's efficient, cost-effective, like inventory versus unit cost for print-on-demand versus offset. And the line for print-on-demand keeps moving closer and closer to offset. So there might be a point yeah. where O'Reilly says, we can't do a book on Ruby on Rails for you know zoo management or something. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. we have someone who wants to write the book. And we know only 500 copies will sell, so we're only going to release it in a POD model yeah. or as an ebook. That would be a point that would be more interesting to you. Totally, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. And so then we also have what I, I there's, it's re- they're really hard to describe, but the technical term in the industry is sidelines, oh. um, but really uh, retail that isn't books. So knick-knacks. we have, yeah, knickknacks, things, gadgety things, uh, but we have a ton of, we, we're a spark fun and an Adafruit reseller. And so we have like a ton of oh. um, electronic kits and mm-hmm. uh, soldering kits that you can put together, different range of skills. Um, and we just our old store was really close to Metrics Create Space, which mm-hmm. has a really amazing parts wall, and so we weren't carrying a lot of individual parts. But since we've moved a whole seven blocks, which in Seattle is like <laughs> a huge amount, uh, we uh, we've started carrying some really small parts as well. And then we also have puzzles and games. Let me take a brief pause to thank one of this week's sponsors, Mailchimp. You've probably heard about Mailchimp because you receive email. In 2013, they sent out on behalf of the mailing lists that they help people run 70 billion messages. They're working with over 5 million people and businesses around the world to help send out email newsletters. It's very simple to sign up. They have a free offer to get started where you can just use their service up to a certain point. And when your list grows big enough that it's useful to you, then you can start to pay their low fees. At the magazine, we use MailChimp because it was the best way to start. It gives us a lot of flexibility. We can customize forms. We know that the mail will get through because they understand how to help you tailor messages that don't get caught by filters. If you want to read some interesting statistics about the amount of messages that MailChimp processes, go to MailChimp.com slash 2013 to read their annual report. They also make hats for cats and small dogs. MailChimp.com. Go there and give them a visit. They were kind enough to help support us during our Kickstarter campaign for the magazine's book, and it was a real help to get us over the top. Thanks very much. And now back to the podcast. 
I should point out, you're in a really, this, we're on 15th Avenue. We're right near one of Starbucks concept stores, which was mm-hmm. sort of ripped off from another store on yeah, the same yeah. street. But this is actually, it's not downtown, but and it's not a Central Capitol Hill, which is kind of the, right. the most exciting retail part mm-hmm. of Capitol Hill. But a lot of stuff happens on this street. It's very dense for mm-hmm. Seattle. There's now all these condos going up just a few blocks away. And we're kind of in the middle of where, you know, younger people live, tech people live, people walk to transportation. There's streetcar coming not very far yeah. from here. We've got light rail coming within the next two years away now. Mm -hmm, Light rail will be mm -hmm. open a few blocks away. So you're kind of in the hub of like the most dynamic changing part of the city outside of downtown. Yeah, this is a, it's a really good location for us. Um, Especially going, I mean, going forward, like it's just going to, I mean, the city, it's, it's hard to explain to people who I've been here for 20 years and it's hard to explain how. We were never Detroit, but how hopeless Seattle seemed at times. Like, we're ever going to get out of this malaise. And now it's like, oh, it's just great streetcars, light rail, news stores, yeah, condos. Every, yeah. you know? <laughs> now the problem is, like, in San Francisco, people being forced out because yeah. of prices related issues. There's some affordable yeah. housing plans. But I just, I just say that because there's actually – you have a walkable audience here. Oh, people don't have to just – we're not people aren't driving. They could be driving from the suburbs to get here because mm-hmm. there isn't anything like – Eight is in the suburbs either, right. but you also have a huge walkable or like one, some kind of bus stop, you know, yes. uh, reachable store as well. Yes. And with the, um, so beyond the gadgets, so mm-hmm. those are things that we sold at the old store, all, everything I just mentioned. So in the new store, we've added uh, an espresso bar and a cafe. And with the addition of those things, I would say the majority of our regulars like the people that are in here all walk here they're they're people that That's live great. within walking distance and and there are seven thousand coffee shops within one block if you yeah. actually know. but there are i mean there are a number there are I, several I of the feel best like some start. of our regulars like coffee shop hop Every day. Mm-hmm. I think that's, <laughs> I feel like they hit all of them on the block every day, but some don't. <laughs> uh, so we, when we moved, we knew we wanted to do coffee. We also knew we wanted to do food, but there's a limit of how many new things I can learn how to do. Yeah. Cause every uh, one of those things involves more people, more vendors, more staff, and then. And really skills, like skills of knowing like, okay, when do you throw food away and how do you put it together and how do you make it so that you don't have to throw stuff away? And you're out and now what, and you, did you expand? your hours the new location also uh-huh. so you're yep. 8 a.m to 10 p.m mm-hmm. not seven days a week yeah seven every days a week. Day. so every suddenly day. i had this conversation this is a, a, sort of a different realm is marco armin who uh was mentioned before the podcast is the, the creator of instapaper early mm-hmm. tumblr mm-hmm. employee and the guy who founded the magazine mm-hmm. he and i were talking at one point because when tumblr was young before it had any scale he was 24 by 7 support for all the server stuff then they got slightly too big for him and they had a higher like 24 people Mm -hmm. or something or 15 people because when you go from you're in charge of everything as you have been for a lot of things to suddenly you've got two shifts seven days a week that's like suddenly you need like what seven eight people just to cover shifts absences holidays sick time yeah there was a huge amount a huge expansion we were at the old store we were 10 to 8 p.m every day of the week Mm -hmm. and we had five employees and one of those is this really great guy who's 14. So he was mostly – he couldn't run the store by himself. Right. So so like four and a half employees, everybody would run the store by themselves with the help of the – David's mother, one of them? Is mm-hmm, that right? Mm-hmm. I love that. I yeah. saw her bio yeah, on the site. That's great. great. And then uh, she actually was our first employee. She moved out to help us. And so for a little while, it was her and I that ran the whole thing. You know, that's the Powell story too. Do you know that? Oh, no. Is that's pa- great. Michael Powell's father – Open or no, no, it was 
Yeah, Michael, it was this crazy thing. Michael Powell had opened the bookstore in Portland. His father came out to take, or in Chicago, and then his father ran it for him. His father went back to Chicago and like opened a bookstore. Some crazy That's story. Cool. But like they both wound up running bookstores and it's why there were two Powells. That's but cool. But it's this neat interaction. Anyway, it's part yeah. of the same beginnings. So, uh, but when we moved here, when we inverted our hours, so instead of uh, 10 to 8, 8 to 10, mm-hmm. uh, we had to hire 20 more people. 20 more people. Oh my. See, or, a, 15, 15. Yeah, but total. See, I was almost joking about like, the programmer no, shift, yeah, like we did. 24 hours a day for servers, but still, because but you need to cover the, sick leave and vacation. Yeah. And we and, have mandatory sick leave in Seattle, so people take it here, too, yes. if they're ill. Yes, well, which is good. Yeah, no, it's great, <laughs> um, but, but it adds biggest, to your overhead. The right? biggest thing was adding the food program, because mm-hmm. uh, now you have people that their entire shift is in the kitchen making food, mm-hmm. which we didn't have that at all. At the You're cooking space. here so, oh, as well. we cook everything oh, on site, including bread. I think the only thing at this point that we don't cook is our gluten-free bread, which they're working on doing. That's wonderful. I had no idea. That's a lot more over it. So you've mm-hmm. got, what, three plus people working kitchen? No, we've, I think, well, at a time yeah, we have or, two to three. Yeah. Um, but so what I was going to say, though, mm. about the about the move. So we, we added the coffee program and the food program. And what allowed us to do the food program and how it's so amazing, which it, I really think it is, is that we have a good friend. Her name is Crystal Blaylock G. And she did go to culinary school and she's worked in several restaurants here in Seattle and that before, and then before that all over the country really. And, uh, mostly in New York, but she, uh, she has the skills and knows how to run a cafe, which I don't at all. And so having somebody, so she's our cafe manager mm-hmm. and she really runs that entire part of the program, the food portion of it, which is great. I mean, we couldn't, we really could not do that without her. And she's been able to train um, people to kind of, so she's not there all the time either, which is really great. <laughs> yeah. um, so now, you know, some of the employees really know what they're doing and have taken ownership of that portion of the business. And it's a, it's a really good experience for us. And so then David and I, because we wanted to, and out of necessity at the beginning, we really took ownership of heading up the coffee part of it. And then now we have a, a coffee manager as well who who still, you know, she does all the ordering and figures out the menu and the pricing wow. and all that stuff. So there's a lot of it that I, in the hard way I've learned to delegate. So so we have we actually have four managers. We have the cafe manager who does a huge amount of work. And then there's a coffee manager, an events manager, and a bookstore manager, as well as myself, who's here, you know, 60 hours a week, 50 mm-hmm. hours a week. And then David, who is here closer to like eight, um, because he has a full-time job. He still works at Pico. That's fascinating. So you've got, I mean, that's a lot of mouths to feed too. Yeah. So you got both sides. One is you have enough business, obviously, to support oh, yeah. that many people. But also then you have the obligation that you've got to keep all these people mm-hmm. Busy and working. Let, I want to. Uh, well, actually, let's finish the the one thing, which is all the stuff the bookstore yeah. does. And then we can rewind to like how a little more of how you <laughs> got here is. So wait, so the cafe, and then oh, yeah. oh you also and wait, we talked about we talked about books. You do events here yes, now. We you do have events. Event space. So we have our own events that we do, um, and our events manager is actually a full time student right now. I apparently have this uh, skill of hiring multitaskers because I I think I'm one too, and so I get along really well with those people. But he's graduating. Uh, this year, which is, we're, we're like counting down the days, but we have a really great internal events program. We do at least one event every month, but he has all these ideas. I'm looking forward to this summer because I think we're going to try to bump it up to like one a week, like a huge jump of just internal programs mm-hmm. that Ada's produces. And then uh, we are an event space. And so people come in and do their own events that we help facilitate and give space for. So some weeks we have events every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other weeks, you know, it's just one or two. But we have, I would say we have at least one or two events every week. 
And, and speaking as someone who's been actually looking to find a space for an event, in fact, I may wind up doing it. There's no quid pro quo here, folks, but I may wind up doing an event here. Uh, it, it's very hard, even in Seattle, to find a place that fits the need, especially if you've got a technical thing. I want to come mm -hmm. and, you know, if someone wants to come and say, we want to do a class on Adafruit, on like yeah. programming or developing. Uh, we have this Arduino idea. Where do you go? Right. And so here right. is a natural place. Like, oh, the first place you might think about calling now is Ada's, as opposed to, can we get a, we could be in a room at a library branch, but they restrict certain things you might do and yeah. we couldn't charge for it if we like all these kind of limits that might come into play mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we have plans for increasing the amount of space that we could do events in because right now it, we we really increased it from our previous store to this store what's the um, size change this is enormous place oh yeah now, uh well i you know i don't even remember the specific square footage but i know that we have like two and a half times the shelf space mm -hmm. and then uh the whole cafe and espresso bar area are completely in addition to that so quite a bit larger i remember hearing at powell's one of the problems that they had there years ago i consulted there briefly in the late mm -hmm. 90s and so i had interesting conversations about book information whatever mm -hmm. one of the problems they had is they actually could not buy enough books to sell fast enough on the used side oh. and so when you expand i'm curious about you expanded your shelf mm -hmm. space that means you must have been constrained partly by physical space and what you could sell not by demand as oh uh, at the previous location mm -hmm. oh yes i mean that was that was the first thing that motivated the move was that we were at a place where we couldn't even fit books on the shelf anymore. And it wasn't like, oh, we have too many books. You know, I mean, I just said earlier that I'm very picky about what we bring mm -hmm. into the store. But after two and a half years of being in that location, the really quality books that we wanted to carry that were really great and that people would really respond to, we, there just wasn't enough room. Can you um, talk about turn? Because this comes mm -hmm. into play, right? This is a retail thing that listeners who aren't involved in the retail side might not know about. But it, it, there's, there's an issue about how you want inventory to be rotating right. through at a certain pace. And that affects your margins and your ability to turn a profit. Yeah, and, and yeah. So, I mean, I, there's – and a lot of it, we're still a new business, and so some of the turn numbers, you know, is like, oh, I don't even know how accurate that is or anything. But there is a statistic specifically with bookstores that say – I mean, I, there is a limit, but the more shelf space you, you have, the more turns you can do, even with the mm -hmm. same number of books, which is great because then you're – same number of titles um, right. because people can see the titles better. And then also like they, people like selection, but then, like I said, there's a limit. If there's too much, then it's a little overwhelming, but still, I mean, that's why Powell's is a city block. I mean, the selection <laughs> is really great and it's yeah. good to, and I'm, I'm certain it started as, well, we need more shelf space because the more shelf space we have, the more turns we can do, the more turns you can do. That's like, the more things you're selling, which and a, is great. A turn is like that's your complete inventory. I mean, not literally yeah, every book yeah. you haven't sold, but it's, it's effectively you sold yeah. your entire store. So how many times? I don't know if I should ask you this. It's a proprietary well, question. How many times a year are you supposed to turn? And I, I think you're business? supposed to turn three times. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah. and I, like I said, I actually don't know that I could tell you if you put me on the spot. I know we've done calculations, but it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like a oh, we changed our inventory system, so hopefully that number is still right, you know, you or have, whatever. You have targets for profitability and <laughs> margins and, yes. and, and oh, so yeah. forth. I mean, when I look out there, so what do you stock? You have 20,000, 25,000 uh, no, so we're, we're lower than that. It's, it's a little deceptive. Books so, versus titles, but so yeah. books versus titles. Yeah. Um, so I, well, maybe close to that in, in books, mm -hmm. uh, titles, it's closer to seven or 8,000. Mm -hmm. But that's, but so uh, there's a bookstore in Port Townsend, Washington, mm -hmm. if you've ever been, if mm -hmm. you've been to the store. Yeah. yeah. And you walk in there. The first time I walked in the store, my dad lives up there now mm -hmm. and I walk in and I walked around and I just, I, 
I was beside myself. I couldn't speak because <laughs> every book had a story. And you can tell mm-hmm. if you're, I mean, I've been going to bookstores my whole life. I love them. I love books. I'm yeah. like old, new, whatever. And you know, you go in there, you're like, somebody's, a brain is behind this, not a computer, <laughs> not someone's just stocking it. And, right. and I'm sure you have customers who come in who must just go, they mm-hmm. understand, they get yeah. it. Yeah, that happens pretty often, which mm-hmm. is great. It's And that's part of my ideal career, right? Like talking to people that really appreciate it and and love being in a space like this as much as I do. That's really that's great and fun for me. Well, let's um, let's rewind back to a couple earlier things. I uh-huh. think they'll and then we will come back to the mm-hmm. present and there's so much to talk about in this area is, is the name Ada's mm-hmm. uh, uh, technical books. It's a great name. I'm hearing it and going, "Oh, I've, I've been a fan of Ada Lovelace since I was a child." Because yeah. you find it you're like, "Oh my gosh, this woman who with this great mathematics background." You know, I remember hearing this as a kid. I, I when I was in elementary school, what was her name? Grace uh, Hopper. Yep. I didn't realize this until later. I'm pretty sure that she came to speak at my school. There was a woman. Oh, in a mil- wow. I was in second grade, first grade, and there was a woman in a military uniform. And she talked about silicons and programming and computers being as big as – and I remember this vaguely. I'm like – later I'm like, that was Grace Hopper. I was in the <laughs> Bay Area. It must have been her. So That's you know, cool. But I remember knowing from a, from a weirdly early age about Ada Lovelace. But she has become this icon – uh, in a couple of different ways. And I wonder mm-hmm. what led you to pick, you know, what, what led you down the path to say you could call it Babbage's, you could call it, mm-hmm. you know, the, the robot's dungeon. has <laughs> all these yeah, things yeah. you could call it. What led you to pick so, so once we decided in that pretty quick turnaround, I mean, literally it was like December, we decided this is what we were going to try to do. And the store opened in June. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. But oh we, uh, in That's that amazing. amount of time, you know, we said, well, we need to, obviously it needs to be called something. And so I think, well, our legal business name is Seattle Technical Books LLC. And that was kind of the like, well, if nothing else works, <laughs> that works. It's not our favorite name in the world, but it definitely describes what we're trying to be and who we are. And, and it's a good legal business name. And it's, if you go to our website, you can, Go to adasbooks.com and you'll notice that it's, you know, it's an alias for seattletechnicalbooks.com. And that's, a, you know, there's a lot of business decision behind that. But it wasn't like the best, you know, it doesn't have the character and the name and everything. And and I knew that I wanted to name the bookstore after somebody that had done something interesting. And uh, we also wanted it to be a, after somebody that, you know, not there, there weren't a billion things named after them already. Mm-hmm. And I think like around that time was when... I feel like Tesla has these like waves of like popularity where he kind of drops off the map and then somebody reminds everybody about how awesome he was. And then it's like people go insane about him. And so I think it was during like one of the like insane moments of him. And I said, you know, somebody like that, but not Tesla because everybody knows who he is and we're not going to do Tesla. But uh, that same like age of, you know, invention and that kind of stuff. And so again, David said, you know, we were were naming all these people. And then he said, "I've, I've got it. What about Ada Lovelace? And just the fact that it was, you know, a woman that did something in computer science and the fact that, you know, it's my, and at the very beginning, it was very much my business. Mm -hmm. Um, David's helped a lot, you know, recently, but at the very beginning, it was a woman running a business that had to do with tech and it was just a very perfect fit. And then the, you know, a bookstore with like dark woods and Victorian style stuff like that, the, the image that it that it gave me was really great too. And so that it was a really good fit. Um, 
so yeah, it was like the aesthetics behind it, but then also really celebrating somebody that did something interesting in science and technology and that not very many people know about. So it's pretty fun to be able to educate the general public about who Ada Lovelace was and what she did and why it was interesting and that kind of stuff. And her tragic story as and well. And her tragic story, yes. Everybody has a tragic story in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. Though, but she did not go insane. That's the, the ma- mathematics <laughs> well, kept her maybe sane. later, you know, she was, oh, I think right. she was 36 when she died. So, oh, you know, right. she wasn't happened. quite old enough to, <laughs> to go that's insane true. maybe. But we talked there's all these things that, uh, you know, there's not necessarily semiotics, but you talk about signals and signs and things mm-hmm. that signify. And, uh, you know, I find, um, as someone who has an engineering mind myself, you mm-hmm. must find this as well, is that engineers tend to take things literally. Yeah. And when you – so they will look at something and say there's no implication, there's no bias, there's no whatever mm-hmm. in this thing. And, and there is. There's subtext. When I see Ada's, to me, mm-hmm. I say, oh, this is an, a, a signal in part. There is a subtext. That is, it's a welcoming thing. It's not that men shouldn't come in. It's not whatever. But it seems like you're sending a signal in it of inclusiveness as opposed to if you'd called it, like, say, Babbage's or something yeah. like that. Which would, it might have sent a slightly different message. So, I mean, there was a little bit of, like, why that was perfect. We weren't intentionally looking for a woman to name the store after. But mm-hmm. um, that was part of the reason why, the, why naming it after Ada was perfect. That's also just kind of part of the business mission in that not specifically women, but anybody. So I think there was discussion at the very beginning of starting Ada's about why I really wanted to do it. And part of it was that I love technical bookstores. I love books. I love technology. Um, Maybe I just also really like aesthetics and like interior design. And I just kind of felt like that was something that didn't exist, that there's some really fantastic technical bookstores that actually have some great interiors and everything, but they don't you know, they're not like super focused on, on what it looks like in the way that I would be, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to put a, a vase of flowers on the fireplace mantle in the middle of the bookstore. That's something that, you know, a general bookstore maybe would do, but most technical bookstores, that's not, they don't, you know, that's not something that they would want to do or have any need for. And so to me, I was, I thought I saw a really great opportunity of carrying really interesting topics and doing it in a way that anybody would want to come in and see what was going on and learn about something. And we, I mean, we have this thing here at Ada's where we tell people that um, this is not a bookstore for people that are on, that are in tech. It's mm-hmm. that's not the only reason why we exist. That's not what this is. It's a big bookstore for anybody. And I really think that everybody nowadays is involved in tech in some way, whether it's just carrying around a cell phone. I mean, even that you're involved in tech. You, yeah. You you carry a piece of high technology in your pocket and you're downloading apps and you're, you know, doing all these things. And so I I would argue that everybody is involved in technology at some point or some way um, right now. And the maker movement has sort of helped people embrace yes. that more, it seems, mm-hmm. is that I feel like there is this, you know, the, when the iPad came out, everyone said it's just for consumption. And there's yeah. a lot of. Uh, of good blowback to that of people saying no 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 wait a minute we can create stuff and the iPad immediately proved it wasn't true because it was a unique kind of input device but I feel like there's been that message that we should all be consumed there's you know long period of mass culture mass whatever and now the maker movement is one of the things that gives me the most hope for the future of humanity not because everyone's doing tech but because it's it's, it extols the idea that we can do things with our hands and um, when I was at uh, Double Union I'll I'll put a link to the Mm -hmm. show notes to uh, interview with Amelia uh, Greenhall of Double Union so woman oriented makerspace in California and they're embracing not just, I mean, they're embracing every sense of technology. So they're going to have, you know, looms and weaving and because wearable mm-hmm. technology is a big thing. So you need yeah. to be able to do stuff with your hands in that sense, as well as 2d printers and lathes and whatever. So it's that 
encompassing the wider scope. And uh-huh. it seems like your store can serve that wider mission of what technology, I'm making, oh, yeah. making finger quotes of the technology is instead of it being electronic technology. Oh yeah. I mean, we carry things on similar things. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they're books mostly, but you know, wearable technology or um, like CNC machines. And I mean like, yeah, the whole realm of what the definition of technology is to me, I guess it's just the, the love of like science and engineering and making things with your hands and figuring out how things work and that kind of mindset, which mm-hmm. I, I think everybody is somewhat interested in, <laughs> like whether they know it or not. <laughs> well, also, and I should say, so I was bringing us back to the name in the beginning. Let's, yeah. let's cycle back there is, is how did you define uh, success before you got into it? And how mm-hmm. did success for you play out? Because we're four years in. So yeah. by whatever measure you have, you must be succeeding. You just opened a much bigger yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. You've got whatever. Was there a, was there, Were there goals you set out and you achieved them? Or, or are those constantly changing as you move along from the beginning to now? Uh, so there, we're still like in the middle, I think, of the original um, goal, which was that it would be my full-time career and that I'd be making a living from it. Because mm-hmm. we're very lucky in that David has a great career and I could be a housewife if I really wanted to. We could afford we could afford to live off of one salary and mm-hmm. not everybody in the United States could. But we couldn't afford to live off of, you know, like a salary plus like a sinkhole. <laughs> yes. Right? So I can't have a business that we're just like throwing money into. That's not the intention. So so the very first goal of success of like can we move to a new location? Should we still be around? All this stuff is is it just sustainable? Can mm-hmm. it make its own way? And I'm not making any money, but the business is not losing money. Right. That's great. So that was the first kind of definition of success, which we've reached, which is really great and super exciting and, you know, huge celebration when we got there. And it was pretty early in, I would like a year and a half in or something, that's which great. is great for a business. And for like a bookstore too. It's because there's so much sunk inventory. Any busy, any business, but yeah, yeah. So now it's like, uh, like I said, we're still kind of in the middle of, the first original definition of success, which is like that I would make just a little bit of money so that I'm, you know, like that it's not, you know, net, net zero. It's not a, it's not a business <laughs> operated for the benefit of, of your patrons and your staff. That yeah, you actually which, get something out of it as right. well. And I, and I don't need to make a lot of money because that's not, that was not the intention of going mm-hmm. into it, but just, you know, like enough to be like, yes, okay, all this really hard work that I'm doing, like I can see yeah. a return on that. Yeah. So, uh, and we, and I would say like right now we're, I, I I do make a little bit of money. I think it's like $200 a month, which is great. Um, and, and I might be okay if that's how it ends, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was that was part of it. The biggest definition of success, so it was, actually, I can revise that. The first definition was we won't lose any money. I won't necessarily make money, but I'll be really happy. And I'll know what I'm doing, and I'll be involved in the community, and this will be like a great career, and it will be something that I really love doing. So that that was actually really the first thing. And we gave ourselves three years to reach that, and we did, which was really great. And I would say, I mean, I, I loved it from day one. But, you know, three years in, I still loved it. And so it was like, okay, this is great. We're doing good. And so uh, so now it's, you know, we want to grow the business. We want to get to the point where we can, you know, have – right now, even though we have 20 employees, it's still a pretty bare-bones staff. If somebody mm-hmm. calls in sick, that means I'm there or our cafe manager's there or David's there because mm-hmm. we don't have, like, the extra staff, you know, to fill in for that. So it would be kind of nice if we could do that. But – and also I would really – I mean, we – I feel like we have a really great employee program, but coming from the tech world and yeah. knowing – the pay scales and the benefits and all that stuff that is in that world, I don't actually see a reason why I can't give some of those things to my employees here. 
Can I ask, are you going to be affected by if the $15 an hour minimum wage goes into effect? That's um, Seattle's got a very strong yeah. proposal for that. A lot of people running retail operations are concerned. Mm-hmm. Some, already pay, some already pay their staff that or close to that with incentives yeah. and whatever. Others do not. Others are paying closer to the nine-something-an-hour uh, yeah. Washington State minimum wage. Although in Seattle, there's a lot of demand for jobs. So I, my understanding is it would be hard to get someone retail for less than 11 to $14 an hour yeah. already anyway. Yeah, we um – we would be affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it is that, so we, I would say, I mean, I don't know, you know, we have a range of salaries, just like I would say like a, a tech company does where there's a starting salary mm-hmm. and then there's a, a manager salary and that's a very different, you know, scale. But then also uh, the the reality of the retail industry is that people come and go pretty quickly. Yes. And so, I mean, I think I would argue that almost every retail industry part of their business model is to kind of start low and then give quick raises mm-hmm. once you've, figured out, oh, it's a good fit. They're going to be around a little while because if you're putting all this money into like, you know, a staff member that will be there for a month because it's not the right fit, then it's, mm-hmm. that's a little difficult. So, but the biggest thing I think that would affect us is that some of our employees are close to $15 an hour, but not all of them. Yeah. And if we had to bump all of them up immediately, like overnight, yeah. you know, we might have to charge $6 for a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And that would be okay, except that the general public, they don't, a lot of people don't, Think about, you know, why their cup of coffee costs four dollars. Mm-hmm. And so if you said it suddenly overnight became six, I think that a lot of people would be genuinely upset about that. And you can't and you, so you can't push the entire I mean, this is an ongoing I know this gets off yeah. the tech, but it's it's an issue is that and this is gonna happen, there's a push for a national minimum wage, it'll be ten some ten dollars mm-hmm. and something cents, which in some areas could be a hundred percent increase over yeah. or not a hundred percent, I'm sorry, it's not the, the national minimum wage, one, but yeah. you know, twenty to forty percent people are work on tips now and some states they can make I forget what is two or three dollars an hour plus tips and yeah. yeah, so there's a there's a massive change coming. Anyone who is an entrepreneur is going to have to deal right. with the fact that if they were expecting to be able to have starting employees even at a low wage, mm-hmm. that it's going to be something that they have to build into their business model now. Yeah, and and like I said, we do. I mean, but then also as an independent business, mm-hmm. we keep our margins as low as we can. We like to be able to provide a fair price and and all these things. And and say for example, like Starbucks, they're a great company. They have a lot more gears in the works, and they could probably – I don't know. I don't know about their business model, but they could probably afford to bump it up to $15 an mm-hmm. hour and then shave off money somewhere else and not in the cup of coffee price. Right. And so the independent bookstore or coffee shops are going to suffer a little bit more because they would have to hike their prices more than, say, Starbucks would. And so I I think it's a really great idea, and I really do wish that, like, that was – I mean, that is a livable wage, and I think that that would be great to be able to pay everybody that. Yeah. But I think it needs to be – a little bit slower of an adjustment. A phased in so that a we can absorb that. A 50% increase overnight is yeah. like, or I, more than 50%, is, is, it's a little rough for, for a smaller business. I hear that, especially the food service side. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot about that in Seattle, about the, not the necessity of it, but the, but the speed of it where all the suppliers, yes. no one has a chance to adjust to the rate, but nobody wants people to be paid $9 an hour either. Right, it's right. just, you know, it's reality. Well, so uh, uh, maybe we should look at the future too. This is part of the planning is so that you've reached the point where, you know, you know your goals, you've, you're, you know what you what you want out of this business going mm-hmm. forward and what you're trying to do. But where do you see the bookstore going? Because, you know, we are yeah. in the 21st century. We talked about you're doing all these things already. You've got – you're selling electronics parts. You've got um, – you know, you're thinking about whether print-on-demand will be some point mm-hmm. part of it. You're selling ebooks. You're selling ebook readers. So you've got all this incorporated. Is is 3D printing, 2D printing? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, that's a makerspace thing. But are yeah. there service bureau things, things that would serve the same patrons that you would want to – Bring in there are other ideas going forward that that are part of your long term planning already. Yeah, 
there's a lot of really great things that we could do in this space. And what's awesome is that we do have a lot of space, Mm -hmm. um, especially compared to the other place. And um, David and I did actually purchase the building. And so we have control over what we're going to do in it. So the most immediate thing is that we are opening a co-working space upstairs. And so that is what we're working on right at the moment. And that's really exciting to us because it helps with that community aspect of I mean, that's what, that's what I said. That's what I like doing. I like hanging out with people that do these kinds of things. I like building community around tech. And I think that, you know, I could sit in this office and work by myself all day, or I could sit in an office upstairs and work with like 15 other people that Mm -hmm. are doing really interesting things. And that would be really great. And so that, that, and also it's a need that we really need in this part of Seattle. There's really not, I mean, this, this part of Capitol Hill, there's, (laughs) there's, um, co-working spaces have really taken off in Seattle. And I know that there is a demand for some in this neighborhood but it's so hard. That's exciting the rents us. are affordable i mean are, are affordable the uh, office nomads is a long-standing uh, co-working yep. space and they've had a hard time finding additional space right. to expand into their under demand and right. they're not that far away but yeah. capitol hill as we say this is a very happening part of town yeah. and people you've got your regulars rotating through coffee shops they don't want to wear out their welcome <laughs> but they also don't necessarily want to work in a coffee shop right. all the time either but they can't leap to affording a full-on office space. And the, or they don't want to either. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people don't want to work out of an office space. They right. like the coffee shop atmosphere. But but again, yeah, it's – and then also that's – you know, it's it's a good business move for us. But then it's also something that I personally want. Like I, I want to work in that type of environment. So that's mm-hmm. exciting for us. That's the most immediate thing. And then there's a couple other ideas that we have that are still in development and may or may not ever happen just based on, you know – how things go and what we decide to do. I know that, well, I know that for me, a big portion of the business that I think is severely lacking and I would love to increase is our online presence. Mm -hmm. And there have a lot of what I think are really fantastic ideas that I just don't have time to implement right now. And so, uh, those are probably coming in like the next like four (laughs) years. And I mean, the internet's going to be so different by then. Like maybe they'll never come. I don't know. Um, But you did just, (laughs) just just buy an outfit. And I just keep getting, you know, I don't have retail experience, but I've experienced in the book industry and a bunch of other kind of things around this. And I'm amazed at the speed at which you guys are able to execute. And I think Mm. it seems like this must speak to your ability to actually make a decision and do it, which, which impacts so many people where they just, they're like, well, you know, I know people spent five years planning a move and they bought a house and it wasn't the right house and you're like just oh you know so is, is that part of the secret of where you're at now is that you can actually you guys plan and then you yeah. execute yeah david and i work really well together i think on a lot of different levels i'm really lucky to be married to him it's really great but we uh we complement each other really well and i think that we um in a business sense we were able to bounce ideas off each other pretty quickly and figure out the feasibility of an idea mm-hmm. and the longer that we've kind of been doing business together, the more people we've started to get on our team of like really talented people and we've learned to delegate things in such a way. Like the beautiful, our space is so amazingly gorgeous and honestly, that is because of our architect. Mm-hmm. It's I had a great idea, I think, and I was able to say this is what I want it to be like and it was a series of pictures and feelings and, you know, words and uh, and our architect was able to take all that and go, oh, like this? Yes, exactly. That's perfect. And so I think part of it is who you know, and part of it is just kind of seeking out that kind of people, like the co-working space, like I said, like yeah. seeking out those kinds of people to be around. But then also, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, at least right now, we, David and I have been really good about saying, well, this is something that I really want and feel really passionate about and feel like is missing. And 
I really hope that I'm right about this, but I think other people agree with me. And that's kind of how we've been going about business so far. And so far we've been right about everything. I mean, someday we'll, we might be wrong that, you know, something that I really want and think is missing is only missing from my life and nobody else's. But so far that's, and that's part of the quick action is like, we're able to, to know if it's a good idea pretty quickly by bouncing the idea off each other and then just say, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Long-term thinking shows too the fact that you had you know you have these intermediate goals and mm-hmm. that you're able to go and in that even within those goals to be able to expand the space so that you can encompass more of the things you wanted mm-hmm. to do and leading to eventually right making a full time going to the full time living from it yeah. but now you own you also own your space which yes. is huge ten years from now the rent doesn't go doesn't triple you right. have a fixed right. cost and then you've got a piece of real estate in Seattle which is a wonderful investment for the future yeah, based yeah. on current market trends so. yeah yeah we I mean I. The move to this location was not always part of the business plan, mm-hmm. but it, once you, once we found it, again, it was bouncing the idea off each other so quickly, but realizing there will never, I mean, really, there won't be another opportunity like this yeah. for us. This was a bookstore already, and they they didn't they uh, retired, right? The owners. Uh, no, they, they're actually still in business. Oh, they're they like moved. in a, oh, okay. um, They're in like an underground uh, like parking garage in Capitol Hill. Oh, still, like, okay. It's a it, it's you a know funky store, right? So <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. But it's got its own audience. It's got people who really mm-hmm, care mm-hmm. about it, and that's great. Oh, I, I thought they'd actually yeah. go away. Well, yeah, nice. yeah. Yay. Um, so yeah, they're still they're still around, but yeah, it was. But this house, the the thing that was perfect about this was that it had charm. It was an amazing location and it needed a lot of work. And so we didn't feel bad about going in and ripping out walls, even in this charming house, because the walls needed to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that we were able to keep the house was like reward enough. And so it was, it really was, there were so many things about it that were perfect. And really, I don't know that there would have been any, it was, you know, timing too, and being aware of what's going on. But, but yeah, it's the fact that we were able to move to the space is really, it's really good for the business and for us. Well, in two years, I'll come back and get my neural reading interface implanted and (laughs) and still be able to buy books here. Thank you for having me into the store. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.